0: Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Hi, welcome into the Advanced Nuclear Weapons Alliance Nuclecast podcast. I am your host, Adam Lowther, Strategic Advisor to NYDC. DC. Today's guest is Dr. Michaela Dodge, who is a research scholar at the National Institutes of Public Policy. Now, I first met Michaela when she was a policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation many years ago. And uh, in the years since, Michaela has gone on to earn her PhD and become one of uh, the country's top nuclear weapons and deterrence experts. And with that, welcome into the show, Michaela.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Now, last year, COVID, uh, COVID 2020, that many of us would like to forget, we put together a book with some other folks uh, on behalf of. Uh, Air Force Gold Strike Command and those interested in understanding the role of nuclear weapons and deterrence to try to explain what role deterrence plays and what role nuclear weapons play in protecting the nation. And in that book, you wrote a chapter that discussed budgeting and discussed the costs of nuclear weapons. And so on today's show, what I was hoping we could spend our time discussing is sort of giving uh, listeners a comparative analysis of what nuclear weapons cost, what deterrence costs the country, and then what we can get out of it. What what do they get for their money? And so with that, let me just ask you sort of the first question, and that would be how can Americans better understand the costs of nuclear weapons in context?
1: It is very difficult to actually disentangle um, costs of nuclear forces, and that is due to several reasons. Uh, some of the system, for example, our bombers we use for conventional missions most of the time, yet for the budgeting purposes, they are often counted as nuclear systems. Uh, it's same same similar goes for the F thirty five, which is conventional platform, but also will carry nuclear weapons. And so my advice would be to always look at assumptions and reports that clarify their assumptions, what they count and how and why. Now, um, what makes matters even more complicated is long timeframes that nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons modernization entail. And, of course, the longer the time frame, the more uncertain the estimate is. And so because of all of these factors, it is really easy to shape the story to one's preferred outcome. Now, I think the most important thing, though, is that context that that you mentioned in your question. And the context is what it is that nuclear weapons provide for us. And how does it stack relative to other functions of the government and other funds that the government spends on on the citizens' behalf? And I think undoubtedly, nuclear weapons forces spending is one of the most important outlines in the federal budget. That is because nuclear weapons are one of the very, very few weapons that can fundamentally change life as we know it in a very, very short period of time.
0: So as we think about budgeting, and we've seen, you know, some studies that call it the trillion-dollar triad and that... Focus on this 30 year cost and sort of condense it down into one budget number. For most Americans, a trillion dollars seems like a lot of money. And as you think about this long term spending, can you perhaps put it into a context that Aunt Sally in Iowa or Uncle Ron in Oregon can better understand in terms of what the government spends and what portion of that uh, is spent on nuclear weapons. So, for example, I like to point out that Americans in any given year will spend more on chewing gum than they will on nuclear weapons. And I would argue, in my humble opinion, that nuclear deterrence and the security that provides uh, is far more important to us than chewing gum. So, is there a way to put it in
1: context for us? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, if we talk about the US federal budget, the Department of Defense portion of the federal budget is about 16% or so. It doesn't diverge that much. Out of that, nuclear weapons, both modernization and sustainment, will be 6.4% at the peak of nuclear. Mo- modernization Now the example that I like to use is um, between the period between 2004 and 2019 the government paid out 1.2 trillion in improper payments, waste fraud and abuse. that's in 15 years it improperly paid, more than we will spend on nuclear modernization in the next 30 years. And, you know, I do know that a trillion dollars is a lot of money, but the value we are getting in terms of preserving our way of life, in terms of upholding our alliance commitments, in terms of protecting our forward deployed troops, um, I mean, it, it's really immeasurable
0: it's It's interesting to to think about it in the sense that if you go back to World War II, and so one of the the things that we talk about nuclear weapons doing is that they prevent, or they have prevented for seventy plus years, great power wars. So there was no World War III with the Soviet Union. Uh, and we have we've reduced conflict and the the sort of the severity of conflict over time. And if you go back to World War II and you look at what the federal government spent on the war effort, it was up to half of, of the total gross domestic product. So 50 cents on the dollar earned in this country during the war, during that time frame, were spent on war fighting. And I would argue that nuclear weapons have allowed us to reduce total defense spending because we're not fighting those types of wars. What say you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, not only that, but early on, nuclear weapons were a much larger portion of the Department of Defense's budget. So, you know, in the 50s, I think it was somewhere around half of the Department of Defense's budget went to nuclear weapons programs. Our last modernization cycle was during the Reagan era. And back then it was about um, over 8%, if I recall correctly. So we we really are not thinking about dramatic numbers. And, you know, just to think about, we've just passed more than 6 trillion in various capital infusions. Um thanks to the Wuhan origin coronavirus. Um, Now, if you canceled the GBSD, the the Intercontinental Range Strategic Missile replacement entirely, it would be 0.002% of the federal budget. It would be 0.003% of the projected federal spending and 0.002% of the spending to date on the pandemic. Um, my colleague, Tim Morrison at the Hudson Institute crunched numbers on that. Um, and really the, the benefit we are getting, the deterrence of a great power war would be much, the, if we did not have that, it would be much more costly for the United States.
0: Well, one of the things that concerns me is, is many detractors, for example, of GBSD and of the nuclear arsenal in general. That one of the problems I have is that I'm concerned that conventional conflict becomes more prevalent. And if conventional conflict becomes more prevalent because we don't have an arsenal and, in, and our adversaries perceive you know, if deterrence credibility is capability times will and we have less capability and there is a perceived lack of will and our adversaries begin to be more assertive and aggressive, I'm concerned that that the mo- amount of money we spend on on defense goes up and, and that the, the benefits that nuclear weapons have brought us by suppressing the amount that's required to spend on defense because we're not fighting wars, that we lose that very benefit.
1: I mean, you know, clearly any deterrence failure would be much, much more costly than any sort of temporary benefit we would derive from cutting GBSD or cutting Columbia class or whatever it is. America can afford survival as Secretary of Defense, James Mattis said in his time. Uh, Really, you know, defense spending is a no-brainer. It's one of the primary constitutional obligations of the federal government. Uh, It is incredibly important uh, for us to posture ourselves credibly to deter war in the face of increasing aggression and belligerence of Russia, China, Iran, North Korea uh, and just much more complex security environment than we faced in the past now this is not to you know say that it was easy to deter the Soviet Union because it wasn't but i think partly we forget how difficult it was to deter the Soviet Union and uh, in our in our minds we paint this picture of sort of automatic, mutually assured destruction deterrent that didn't quite work, we were lucky that the Cold War ended when it did, and in the meantime, we forgot the lessons that we learned, the good lessons we learned during the Cold War.
0: Now, at this point in the show, I want to go ahead and take a break. We're at about the halfway point, so uh, stick with us, Michaela, and we'll be right back. This episode of NuclearCast is brought to you by the Amla Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Michaela Dodge of the National Institutes of Public Policy. So before the break, we were talking about the benefits of nuclear weapons. Now, I want to posit to you sort of my perspective and see what your take on it is. Now, as I think about nuclear weapons spending, and I go back all the way to Eisenhower and the New Look Policy, and the idea was that if We spent on nuclear weapons. We would deter great power conflict. And in deterring great power conflict, we would deter conflict between the allies and partners of great powers. And essentially we push the quantity and scope of conflict down. And then what that allows the United States to do is it allows us to shift where we spend our Uh, gross domestic product from fighting wars. And like I said earlier, we spent half of the gross domestic product during World War II on the war effort. And so therefore, we get to do things like uh, research and development. And we get to focus, we have lower taxes. And with lower taxes, American citizens can buy, like I drive a a beautiful blue Ford F-150 off-road edition, Uh, that's great in snow, great in the mountains. Now, if, if the United States were constantly fighting wars, I might have to pay higher taxes that would prevent me from buying that beautiful truck and the nice house I live in. And I might not have this thing in my pocket that I can pull out and I can ask this little device I've got, any question, and it will give me the answer to it. And I can even talk to people on the other side of the world uh, in an instant. And so if we were spending on constant wars, and on, you know, particularly great power wars, the money might not have been there to go and develop all of those other things that are now part of American life. And so as I look at nuclear weapons, and I really try to look at the effects they've had, over the last 70 years, I'm actually quite thankful that they were there because of what I attribute their success to be, which is deterring all of those wars that would have taken treasure and American blood. And so I think they've done a great job. Now, am I wrong about that?
1: You know, I, I don't think you're wrong. I think you might need to pay higher taxes anyway because of Medicare and Social Security and all of those entitlements. Um, But, you know, back to deterrence and U.S. nuclear posture. I think the disagreement we're having today, which is disagreement we've had for pretty much since the dawn of the nuclear age, is how much is enough. And we have since the end of the Cold War, we have been reducing and we have been hoping that we will realize additional benefits of nuclear force reductions and not not having to pay for it, and others will follow our leadership. Remember when the first post-Cold War nuclear posture review was written, the, the overarching theme was lead but hedge. We've done a lot of leading. We've reduced over 90% of our short-range nuclear weapons, over 80% of our long-range nuclear weapons. We haven't done much, by the way, of hedging. Our infrastructure is in crumbles. We cannot produce a nuclear weapon, a new nuclear weapon, on any sort of reasonable, flexible time frame today. Despite the fact that Russia and China have been bolstering and improving their nuclear weapon capabilities. and you know, at some point, and I, I, I I'm afraid that we're approaching that point pretty fast, we have to start thinking about nuclear deterrence and um, nuclear uh, and what our adversaries are doing and what it means for our posture seriously we are not in a position to continue to ignore capabilities that Russia and China have been building up in the past 20 years.
0: So one of the things that we have to think about with nuclear weapons is, of course, uh, credibility. And with credibility, we get that through capability and will. And so you've discussed the Chinese and Russian modernization programs compared to our sort of slow response. Now, I would argue that we have diminishing capability, and I think you've you've talked about the nuclear weapons complex and some of the challenges that are there. And that goes to the capability side of the house. And then I would argue that there's a will side of the house where we're experiencing significant challenges relative to Russia and China in particular. How, How has our reluctance to modernize and this fight over whether we will modernize or not, how do you think that has had a potential effect on the perceptions of the Russians and the Chinese in viewing our own willingness to be a nuclear power and if push came to shove, to use those weapons?
1: I think what we are seeing is a general unwillingness of democratic governments to think seriously about war and about preparations for war. And it is something that we have been seeing in the course of US history, you know, completely unprepared for the outbreak of the First World War almost negligently unprepared for the outbreak of the Second World War. And we had to mobilize, we had to pay in blood and treasure to come and save the world order that was beneficial or has been beneficial to us and to most countries around the world. Um, And, you know, I worry that it is the repeat of that pattern I worry whether we will have time to mobilize in the nuclear age should deterrence fail and should we have another outbreak of a great war. Um but I you know I I I just we will have to see. I I do think that leaders of foreign countries um there, There is nothing like certainty. They will not be able to predict how the United States will respond to a situation X, Y, and Z. And we may not be able to predict that either, uh, because it's very situation dependent. Or they might predict that the United States will get involved and will mobilize, and they may, may not care anyway, like the Japanese didn't care after attacking the Pearl Harbor. And because there is that potential for deterrence to fail, we should think about our posture, what happens if deterrence fails, and how we can fight the war in an intelligent manner and end the conflict on terms favorable to us, however unsavory such thoughts might be. All of these considerations should feed into our future nuclear modernization plans. So we shouldn't be doing just what we have always done because we have always done it. But we should really think about what it means that we are facing these new adversaries, that we are facing new complex challenges, what it means for our nuclear weapons programs, what it means for our defensive programs, perhaps more importantly than our, um, nuclear programs Uh, it it is a it's a very difficult problem and i think we will struggle and i I don't have full confidence that we will be successful uh figuring it out until it's almost too late
0: the united states does as you point out have a history of being responsive uh instead of proactive uh, and I like, I think you're right that it's you know it's a, an aspect of a democracy that democracies tend not to want to fight. Uh, they want to pursue you know life, liberty, and happiness uh, instead of you know fighting wars. But uh, as you do point out also, uh, we do step up, we step up late. we try to modernize nuclear arsenals or our nuclear arsenal. Uh, We have an arms control community that does not support nuclear modernization. And I've heard, uh, you know, both in their public statements and then, of course, in uh, the writings of the arms control community, they argue that the cost is is just unaffordable. And they point out that it'll be over a trillion dollars over the next 30 years. To both modernize and sustain the nuclear enterprise. Now, this to me it, it seems like a farcical argument, particularly given that we've spent, you know, just in the period of COVID, we've spent more than four trillion dollars on programs that, in many respects, they, they never went to their intended beneficiaries. And so, if we can easily spend four trillion dollars in just over a year, uh, and then, of course, on average, you know, the federal budget before COVID was pushing five trillion dollars a year. Why is it that the arms control community consistently tries to suggest that nuclear modernization is something that the U.S. federal government and the American taxpayer cannot afford? I do not know.
1: Um, You know, obviously not being a member of the arms control community, I I wouldn't want to speak on its behalf. But, you know, the truth of the matter is, if somebody asked Americans, would you be willing to spend $5 trillion over 30 years to keep your way of life or face the alternative of being bullied by Russia and China into a national security position that, you know, supports everything else, that supports our trade, that supports freedom of seas, that supports satellites we send into outer space that are incredibly important for our commercial sector. I mean, Americans are common-sense people. Of course they'd want to look dangerous enough To be left alone to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. Similarly, you know, if you ask them, hey, are you willing to be hostages to North Korea, Iran, Russia, or China? They would say, no, of course not. We want the best missile defense we can.
0: So as we come to the end of the show, as we've talked, we've, we've talked a lot about budgeting. And we've talked a lot about the role of, nu- of the nuclear arsenal. and We've talked about modernization. What advice would you give advocates of modernization who, who think that what we plan to spend over the next three decades is well worth uh, the cost? What, what advice would you give them for making arguments as they go home, you know as they depart you know from washington d c where many many of the the folks are as they go back to Iowa and they go back to Alabama and wherever else they may originally be from, and they talk to friends and they talk to relatives to try to explain what nuclear weapons do and why they're well worth it. Do you have any final parting advice
1: for them? You know, talk about the context, talk about the alternatives, an alternative world in which we do not have the benefit of nuclear deterrence, in which we do not have the benefit of freedom of action away from U.S. shores to keep conflict there instead of on our homeland. Uh, Talk about other types of spending, relative to what we are planning to spend on nuclear weapons modernization, and talk about the goodness that America's predominant position has um, spread around the world since the Second World War, not only for Americans, but for people in Europe, for people who enjoy benefits of trade and can participate in this global market that, us freedom or you know freedom upheld freedom of action upholds
0: dr michaela dodge thank you again for joining us Uh, this was an enlightening discussion and i also want to thank the listeners the nuclear cast listeners uh, our next podcast we are also as you might guess going to talk about nuclear weapons and nuclear modernization but from a totally different perspective So uh, with that, thanks again, everyone. Uh, Michaela, it was a pleasure.